All right, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Luke chapter 2 this morning? And we're going to just, we'll just take it a few weeks out before we start our series on the life of Abraham and Sarah. Um, just to have a look at wisdom, the subject of wisdom. And we started last week, and if I can just briefly recap um, Gospel of Luke. Yeah. Just quickly recap what we um, shared last week. And uh, we're talking about the subject of wisdom. Wisdom, we said in Hebrew thought, is uh, means the, the skill or the ability to live life according to God's plan or God's uh, blueprint. Um, it's having the ability, the capacity to um, uh, skillfully shape our world um, in the practical everyday areas of life um, around God's design, around God's purpose. And, and it's just, it's about lifestyle. It's about how we conduct our finances, our relationships, the way that we communicate, um, the choices and the decisions that we make. And it's, it's, it's just about the ordinary stuff of life, which, um, uh, which we, we're all faced with um, decisions about about. Ordinary things. What do we do with our money? How do we? How should we treat one another? Etc. Etc. And one of the definitions that which I really like concerning wisdom is this: wisdom is the ability to say or do the right thing with the right heart attitude at the right time. So I'll just repeat that: wisdom is the ability to say or to do the right thing with the right heart attitude at the right time. Now, just to build on that, just as an aside, if that's what it's like for an individual community or communal or organisational wisdom is having the right people in the right place saying and doing the right thing with the right heart attitude at the right time. That's what what organisational effectiveness is and that's how... um, the Christian community is called to function. It's, it's having the right people in the right place, saying and doing the right thing with the right heart attitude at the right time. So um, wisdom, we described, is the outcome of, um, of two things, knowledge and understanding. And so when we looked um, through uh, the Bible, we saw that often wherever the word wisdom was mentioned, you see um, knowledge and understanding are also there. And what knowledge is, uh, we're called to acquire knowledge. That is, we're called to gather um, facts, information, truth. Then we take that knowledge, and understanding is um, the assessing of the knowledge that we've acquired. So it's personalizing and processing that information or truth. So it's making, it's making that truth real for our lives. And then wisdom is rightly applying knowledge and understanding. So if you were to create, if you like, an equation, uh, it's knowledge plus understanding equals wisdom. We acquire knowledge 
Um, we, ass- we assess that knowledge through un- and gain understanding, and then we apl- apply that. The application of that understanding is what the Bible um, describes as being wisdom. And then we said that God is wise. And the wisdom of God is demonstrated in four primary ways. Firstly, uh, as we look at creation, we see a demonstration of God's wisdom. We, when we look at creation, we see the uh, we see complexity, we see we see beauty, uh, and all of that is the result of the incredible mind of God. That this, uh, as 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 believers, we believe that there is a an intelligence, a, a mind that has put together this world and this universe. That this world is not an accident, but it's the result of the creative power, the creative thinking of God. And so, creation is a display of God's wisdom. God's skill and ability is seen in creation. And secondly, we said that. Um, Uh, Christ is also a demonstration. The person of Jesus is a demonstration of the wisdom of God. That that wisdom is not just... Some people want to reduce wisdom down to a set of principles. And there are wisdom principles, but wisdom is more than following principles. Wisdom is following a person. And Jesus um, in the incarnation, what the incarnation is, is Jesus took on flesh. God became humanity. And as we observe the life of Jesus, we see wisdom personified. Jesus is, um, if you like, God's design and God's blueprint for humanity. And as we see Jesus, we see wisdom enacted. And not only uh, uh, is wisdom demonstrated in the life of Christ, but it's specifically demonstrated in the cross of Christ. That the cross of Jesus was God putting this world to right. The cross of Christ was God satisfying um, both uh, God's need for love and for, for justice. And love and justice marries, is, is, is married at the cross. And God demonstrated um, incredible wisdom. And how, how could God deal with, with uh, the need to um, punish sin, but at the same time reconcile and restore humanity to himself? And God demonstrated his love. Well, it was at the cross in which God was able to do that. And then... Uh, the fourth demonstration of the wisdom of God, which all sent us into um, rapturous hilarity, and that is that we, the church, are the demonstration of the wisdom of God. And I know that's incredibly hard to believe, but yes, t- turn around, have a look at the person next to you. We are a demonstration of God's wisdom. Um, and just as Jesus in the incarnation was God being present in the world. Now, through his body, that's us, through the church, God is now present in this world. And, and through us, God is observable in and through us. And obviously, there are times where we are very ineffective at being a demonstration of God's wisdom. And yet there are other times in which the church is absolutely remarkable 
in terms of demonstrating God's wisdom. I was reading, oh sorry, I was listening to something the other day and uh, I was just reading about when um, um, Paul was the, 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 the first person ever in human history to write about um, the value of, of, of human dignity. Or the, and we need to understand the context in which uh, Paul uh, was, uh, was, was writing back in, in Roman times, 2,000 years ago or so, um, it wasn't uncommon to go to the garbage dump, which would be outside of the, the city walls, and there you would find one-day-old babies because while they didn't um, have abortion back then, what they would, would do is um, unwanted children, often uh, females, were delivered and then taken and just dropped on the local rubbish tip. Where you would find birds and dogs, and you can imagine what that might mean, and you would also find slave traders and and pimps who were looking for merchandise. And in the midst of that awfulness, there appeared on the rubbish dumps of the Roman Empire a new group of people. And that new group of people was the Christian church who were so moved by the compassion of God and the dignity and respect for all human life, began to gather up these unwanted newborn children and take them home and care for them and love them as if they were their own. And that is an expression of God's wisdom that we, the church, um, when we display the wisdom of God, that's how remarkable we as a church can be. And, um, and then we have also the other tragic examples also on the other side of the fence when we fail to express that wisdom. So often perhaps when we're dis, we, we disunified or where we don't champion the cause of the, of the poor, etc. But anyway... The great news is this God who has demonstrated wisdom through creation and through Christ and through the cross and through us, the church, this wise God invites us to walk with him. In Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20, it says, He who walks with the wise grows wise. So if we want to become like this, this incredibly skillful and intelligent God, then there is this open invitation for all of humanity to come and walk with God. And in walking with God, we become like he is, and that is wise. And as we go through scripture, we discover there are a couple of really important things that we need to develop in, uh, in, in, our, li uh, in our lives if we want to become Wise. I'm going to talk about what those two things are this morning. The first thing is if we want to um, develop uh, wisdom in our lives, then the first thing that we need to cultivate is what um, the Old Testament calls the fear of the Lord. 
And, uh, you know, that term um, carries with it, um, I guess, some negative uh, connotations, the fear of the Lord, because of the, I guess we normally associate fear as being a negative emotion. But I might just uh, unpack that a little this morning. In fact, for those of you who are really, really interested, um, I've got a six and a half thousand word paper on the fear of the Lord, which I, I did uh, as one of uh, um, my uh, my assignments, and it kind of digs into this whole thing in some depth of what the fear of the Lord is. In fact, the fear of the Lord is actually a beautiful thing. It's not to it's not um, to shrink back from God in in apprehension, but it's actually it means to run towards God in relationship because. We are so overwhelmed by his, God's kindness and God's goodness and we've caught a glimpse of who God really is. We so respect and honour this God that we can't help but be moved towards him. Isn't it amazing we tend to think of the fear of the Lord as a shrinking back, but in reality what it is is a pushing into and a seeking after God. Um, but... This Old Testament concept of the, the fear of the Lord, it actually describes the, 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 the posture of us uh, towards God in, in respect and reverence or in submission or humility. And it's an attitude towards God really in essence of respect, of reverence, of um, submission and humility. And uh, let me just give you a, a couple of verses as to how the fear of the Lord is linked to the development or the cultivation of wisdom in our lives. Psalm 111 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So wisdom, a, a, a life, a skillful life, a life that is patterned around God's design begins by having a sense of reverence and respect, a sense of humility and submission before God. Um, Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs uh, chapter 9, verse 10 says, for the, rev- for the reverence and fear of God are basic to all wisdom. I love that. For the reverence and fear of God are basic to all wisdom. And so this fundamental thing of, uh, let me just read you a couple of things from my, my paper. So it might whet your appetite for those of you who are kind of uh, academic. Here I've got here, unfortunately the concept of the fear of the Lord is widely and wrongly perceived. Often the fear of God is associated with punishment. This misunderstanding traces its roots all the way to Eden. I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid, which is Genesis chapter 3 verse 10. It is quite understandable why there is widespread confusion regarding the fear of God. The first recorded human emotion in the Bible is the wrong fear of God, it is, which is the anticipation of God's anger in response to our disobedience, which continues to dominate the human conscience and elicit retreat from his presence. 
And here's my, my, my personal definition of the fear of the Lord. It is an inward attitude and feeling of awe and affection toward God in response to knowing who He is and what He has done, which outworks itself in external expressions of worship, service, obedience, and right living. And so if we're to um, develop wisdom in our lives, if we're to become wise, then we need to have a posture of honour and of respect to God, toward God. And it's living life, the fear of the Lord is living life with this acknowledgement that at the end of the day, God, you know everything. And in and of myself, I really don't know too much at all. That's what the fear, if you kind of sum that up, the fear of the Lord is living before God with this attitude, God, you know everything. And left to myself, I really don't know anything. And so I, there's this thing of, uh, the Bible talks about inclining our ear. And I love that word incline. It kind of means, it has that sense of bending into a, or, or leaning. Sorry, you found that? Uh, did you? Uh, from Psalm 119. Uh, what says, uh, yeah, give me a bent for your words of wisdom. So is this, it's where in our humanity we, we lean into, we, we bend ourselves, we incline ourselves to, to what God has to say about the issues of life. So that's the first thing. If we want to be wise, I'd encourage you that wisdom begins by having a healthy sense of respect for who God is. And the second thing that we need to do in order to develop wisdom is not only cultivate a respect for God, but also develop and cultivate a respect for one another. And that's where we come to Luke chapter 2 and verse 40, um, um, 41 through to 52. And we're going to look at how in the life of Jesus, Jesus, how he grew in wisdom and stature, the key for how Jesus developed wisdom in his life or grew in wisdom in his life. It says every year uh, his parents, that's, that is Mary and Joseph, went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And when Jesus was 12 years old, they went to the feast according to the custom. And after the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their, their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. I just love that. You've lost the Messiah. <laughs> How gorgeous is that? You know, you've got this gift from heaven. You know, here he is. We've got G, you know, we've got the Messiah, the Son of God. Yes. Oh my God, we've lost him. You know? And if you're a parent and you've ever lost a child, you kind of know the panic that kind of hits. What's, you know? Um, anyway, uh, when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. 
Verse 46. After three days. <laughs> I love that. Here's this 12-year-old kid running around the city of Jerusalem by himself for three days. Uh, you know, oh my goodness me. That's so funny. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers. Could you imagine how frantic Mary and Joseph must have been by this time, eh? Um, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among, among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. I love that. Here is the Son of God, the one who put this thing together, asking questions. He's learning. He's learning. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? I can imagine it would have been a bit more kind of anxious than that. Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then, oh, I love this. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man or humanity. This is really quite profound. So here is Christ. God. One is is asking questions. But it says that he returned with his parents and was obedient to them. And as a result of that obedience, he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with 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 people. Now what's really interesting, if you have a look at that word obedient, uh, actually the NIV doesn't interpret or translate, sorry, that word accurately. It should not be the word obedient. Those of you who have the King James, the New King James or um, other versions, I think it's the, um, the New American Standard Version, they, they use the word subject. It says that he went, um, he went down to Nazareth with them and was subject to them. As you begin to have a dig into this word um, obedient or subject, actually what we discover is really interesting. It, it really means submission. It means to place under. And it is to voluntarily put yourself in a place of subordination. It is really an attitude of humility before others. And so it says that Jesus went down to Nazareth and he placed himself in subordination to his parents. He placed himself in submission to his mom and his dad. He lived in a place of humility before others. And in a narrow sense, specifically, um, this word um, 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 subordinate means to show respect for one's superiors or those in authority. So submission 
is to have an attitude of humility or an attitude of submission for those who are in authority over our lives and in a more general or broader sense, it means to show um, respect for all of humanity because we recognise that every one of us, every human being that we ever come into contact with is an image bearer of God. Every one of us is made in the image and likeness of God and is worthy of our respect. That we need to live our life before one another in a place of humility, not, in a, not relating to others from a place of superiority, but in a place that we willingly and voluntarily put ourselves under and recognise that those we're engaging with actually are made in the image and likeness of God and are therefore worthy of our respect. Submission is different from obedience. Submission is an inner attitude of humble respect for others, regardless of who they are or what they are. You know that you can, you can be obedient, and those of us who have kids can be uh, very aware of this, you can be obedient but not necessarily submissive. Those of you who are teachers know that you can have kids that are obedient but not necessarily submissive. There's a bit of a common story of a little child who's told to um, go and sit in the corner and um, kind of stomps off and sits himself in the corner and turns around and says to his mum, I might be sitting down on the outside, but on the inside I'm standing up. <laughs> you know? See, submission is actually an inner attitude of the heart, whereas obedience is an outward action. Sometimes it flows from a submissive attitude, and sometimes obedience doesn't flow from a submissive attitude. Obedience is conditional, other than in regards to God, but on a human level, submission is an absolute. Obedience is actually conditional, depending on the the request or the command that is given. Do, Do I need to clarify that a little bit? Okay. Submission is an absolute. In other words, everybody that we relate to, we ought to have an attitude, an inner attitude or a heart attitude of submission, of respect for them. When it comes to obedience, obedience is actually conditional. Maybe if I give you an illustration from Acts chapter 4. It's a really good actual um, illustration of how this outworks itself. So Acts chapter 4.
and uh, it's a story of Peter and John when they're brought, brought before the, um, the religious um, council of the day. And uh, we'll just kind of leap through this a little bit. In verse 1, it says, The priests and the, uh, uh, and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And so they seized Peter and John because it was evening and put them in jail until the next day. So Peter and John are preaching the gospel, telling people about Jesus, and along come those, uh, re- those who have religious authority within um, Judaism, and they take hold of, of Peter and John and throw them in jail. In verse 5, it says, The next day the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John uh, brought before them, and they began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you, before you healed. Then in verse 16, the, the religious leaders ask, what are we going to do with these men? Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these people, uh, warn these men uh, to speak no longer to anyone in this name. In other words, we're going to forbid Peter and John to continue preaching the gospel. How did Peter and John respond to this request? Then they called him in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. At the beginning of the conversation, you find Peter and John address the religious leaders respectfully. They acknowledge that they have authority, they acknowledge their position and their status as the religious leaders of the day. But when those, so they, they have this heart attitude of humility, they respect the position that has been given to them by God. But when they are commanded to obey a command that is unjust, they rebel against it. And they refuse to follow through with that command. And they say, listen, we've heard what you've got to say. We respect and honour your position. However, we're not going to do what you tell us to do. See, submission is an absolute. We, we, we live in a place of respect and honour for all of humanity, particularly those who have positions of authority. However... We don't always necessarily have to follow through with what those commandments are or what those requests are because obedience is not an absolute. 
it is conditional on the nature of the request that is given. And we see from, from the life of Jesus that the level of wisdom that we're able to grow into is actually dependent upon the level of our heart submission. The level of our heart submission towards God through the fear of the Lord and towards humanity actually determines the level of godly wisdom that we are able to grow into. And I guess I could find out, or we could find out, our level of wisdom by doing a submission test. No, we don't want to do the submission test. And we can do the submission test by asking a very simple question, and it's this. How do we respond when someone in authority corrects us or asks us to do something that's legitimate that we don't want to do? How do you respond when somebody asks you to do something that's quite legitimate but you don't want to do it? What is your response? Do you follow through with the obedience but on the inside you are uncompliant? Because if we want to move into deeper or higher levels of wisdom, then we've got to realize that it is determined by the level of heart submission. Do you want me to keep going? Because it's going to get pretty nitty-gritty right now. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 17 None of my kids are here. Oh, that's disappointing. Oh, yes, Chloe's here. You can tell your two brothers, okay? They're not here this morning. I'm going to read a scripture for you. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 17. It's pretty gory, but it's good. It says, The eye that mocks a father and scorns or despises a mother will be plucked out by ravens of the valley and eaten by vultures. How, 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 how lovely is that? The eye that mocks a father and scorns or despises a mother will be plucked out by ravens of the valley and are eaten by vultures. Now let's just unpack this a little. Parents are actually the highest level of human authority that we are called to submit to. Okay? Highest level of human authority that we will ever submit to is our parents. I remember having, um, uh, it was a young guy who was part of our church, and um, he couldn't keep something in his pants. And he was, he was just, oh my goodness me. And he would go from one relationship to another. And it was this trail of devastation. And I'd talk to him and talk to him and talk to him. I got to the point of saying, mate, I won't, I won't use his name. Mate, 
I don't know what to do anymore. I just kind of am exasperated. I, I, I have a responsibility to the young girls of this church, and I am not going to allow you to continue doing this. But you obviously don't respect my opinion. Can I have permission to call your dad and for him to address this issue in your life, please? Because he is the highest human authority in your life. And you're not responding to me, but can I, and to the guy's credit, he allowed me to call his dad up and, and I told his dad the story and his dad was able to sit down and bring correction into his life. It says that the eye, eye has got to do with vision and perspective. Okay, that's what the eye represents. And it says the eye that mocks or despises or scorns, and that is to, well, it's pretty evident what that means, but it's to reject their authority. It's to scorn their authority. It's to live life as though your view is more superior than theirs. And it says, as a result of that, if you scorn, rejise, uh, scorn, despise, reject the authority, the highest human authority that is given... If you reject that, as a result, it says that your eye, your ability to see life, your perspective on life, and your vision for life will be pecked out by the ravens and the vultures. Now, throughout Scripture, you will find that ravens and vultures are synonymous with the demonic realm. Told you it was going to get a little bit heavy. What we do is we put ourselves in a place of real vulnerability when we are living with an unsubmissive attitude towards authority, that our perspective on life can become quite warped and distorted and our vision of where we're going and what we're doing can be marred. This is really, really important if you want to grow in wisdom. If you're not concerned about growing in wisdom, you're happy to stay at the level of wisdom you're on right now, that's cool. Just disregard what I'm saying. Dream of the cauliflower soup that's yet to come. (laughs) Now, if, if Jesus in relationship with his parents... I'm sure in in his humanity, Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. He was tempted in that moment of time to scorn, despise and reject his parental parents' authority. I mean, what do they know? Here I am, I'm the son of God. And it says that Jesus went back to Nazareth and subjected himself to his parents. He lives in submission, heart attitude of respect and reverence for them. And as a result of that, he grew in wisdom and favor with God 
and people. So a submissive attitude is the key to increased wisdom and favour in our lives. Proverbs 8.35 says, He who finds wisdom finds life and favour from the Lord. We are all equal before God, but we, we don't all have equal levels of favour. It's not that God has favourites. We are all equal before God. We are all equally loved before God. But favour, if you like, is having pull with God. And favour is downloaded into our lives as we operate in the fear of the Lord and out of a place of humility and respect for those that God has established an authority in our lives but also toward all of humanity. It's just a significant life principle that we have to acknowledge and accept and embrace. Sure. That's the question out loud. What about people who have abusive parents? It still applies because it's a heart attitude. I mean, I can talk with authority on this because I came from an abusive family background. And I can, I can tell you that my life was messed up for a long, long time because I scorned and despised uh, one of my parents because of their behaviour. Submission doesn't legitimise another person's behaviour, but what it does do is acknowledges their humanity as an image bearer. And it's certainly not living out in obedience. That's why I clarified the difference between obedience and submission. But even if you have been in the most abusive and um, awful parental relationship or even in a, in a, um, with a partner who is destructive. You can still live or you have an employer who is abusive. You can still retain a heart attitude of respect and you might not necessarily respect the person but there is a sense in which we respect the position or the status that they hold. If we cannot find anything good within the individual, we can find something of, of uh, we, what we do do is respect or honour the position or the role that has been given to them, even if they abuse that and misuse that position. Because submission is about us and it's about our internal and emotional well-being and our progress. Is it easy? No, it's flipping hard. It is so darn hard. And as I say, my life was screwed up because of this very issue that I despised and rejected uh, parental authority because I felt legitimised in doing that because of the abuse that was um, perpetrated against me. 
And I paid the consequences for that for quite a long time, well, well, for a number of years. What you say about submission is very, like, that, that's the sort of thing that happens in Chinese culture, and so I just want to, like, all of the stuff you're saying, um, it's not easy to submit to your parents, but it's, I, I understand what you're saying, and I think it's, um, I think that's right, yeah. As long as we understand, we don't confuse submission with obedience, because they're not synonymous. They are very, very different. So even in a, in, a, in a harsh or difficult environment, we are to retain this heart posture of respect. If not for the person, then at least for the position that that, that person stands in. That is very difficult to do in places where, where abuse operates. But what it does is it guards us and protects us. And what it does do is release favour into our lives and causes us to increase in wisdom. Let me just finish on this point. Um, in Ephesians chapters 5 and 6, Paul challenges us, the people of God, to submission. Uh, he calls the church to submit to Christ, but he also calls um, wives to submit to husbands. He also calls children to submit to parents. He calls slaves to submit to masters. But in Ephesians 5.21, every one of those calls to submission are preempted by this one statement, and it's this. And it all begins with, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That we just live in this place of, I might not like what you do, or you might not like what I do, but we have a hard attitude towards one another. That says, I honour you and respect you as an image bearer, made in the image and likeness of God. Someone with frail humanity like I am who makes mistakes and even if I can't see beyond the abuse what I then do is I go I honor and respect the position or role that or title that you might have or hold not necessarily going to obey you but I will respect you because submission is to be offered to all of humanity. It's the uh, can I tell you the first um, um, human commandment given in the Ten Commandments is what honor your father and mother. In other words, if you can get this one right, if you get this one right, if you can learn to honor your parents as the highest authority, then you will find it easier to um, submit to other levels of authority in your life. This is big, big, big stuff, isn't it? Big stuff. But it's the key to wisdom. You can't, you can't grow in wisdom without submission.
Next week it'll be a lot easier. We'll kind of talk about the benefits of... Uh, we'll talk about the good stuff. But we kind of had to touch on, on this, okay? Uh, I was just going to say that I guess the flip side of that as, a, as parents is to be the easiest person it is possible to submit to to create a to make the life of your children the whole life of your children so much easier if they ha- have someone that they are able to submit to easily then that makes the rest of their life and their relationship with authority so much easier